songs that I remember exactly where I was the first time I heard that song. You have songs like that in, in your life, and I, I was saying earlier that it was, a, it was a time in my life that I wasn't too impressed with God's grace anymore. Kind of felt like maybe I deserved it instead of being amazed by His mercy. It's a tremendous text. We appreciate you guys singing that song for us this morning. If you are visiting today, I want to welcome you and thank you for uh, being a part of our worship service today. And uh, we would invite you to take the, uh, there's a card, should be near you in your pew in front of you, and there's a QR code that is printed on that card, and you can scan that with your smartphone, and that'll then take you to a a brief sort of survey. You can tell us a little bit about yourself and also uh, let us know if there's any questions that you may have about our ministry. We'd love to answer those for you and also just follow up with you and uh, help you out however we can, and I invite you to do that. You can also contact us through our website at gracenc.org and get some of your questions answered even on our website. But we just very much appreciate you being in our service today. Came across a recent article. Actually, my wife sent me um, this article. I didn't see it myself. She sent it to me. And I wanted to share it with you because I think it highlights a very real problem in our world as we sit here this morning. It is an article written by a man by the name of Sam Dorman. And Sam is sharing this story and this uh, news story about the Oregon Department of Education. I I tried to not laugh in the first service. Um, It doesn't get much crazier than this. It's about the Oregon Department of Education. I want to read to you some of the concerns that the Oregon Department of Education has with the current methodology of mathematics. They wrote this, and I'm quoting here, the concept of mathematics being purely objective is unequivocally false, and teaching it is even less so. This document goes on and says, upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers perpetuate objectivity as well as fear of open conflict. Do you understand what they're saying? Some of you are so confused, you don't know what to think. It goes on, and it suggests to teachers in the Oregon public school system that they come up with at least two answers that might solve the problem. It adds this, challenge standardized test questions by getting the quote-unquote right answer, but justify other answers by unpacking the assumptions that were made in this problem. Now, I want to be in full disclosure of this article and be fair with the writing. I want you to also understand that part of the concern by the, again, Oregon Department of Education is that mathematics, in fact, fact, is used to promote white supremacy. And by taking this approach to math, we will dismantle racism in math. Now, Racism is no laughing matter, okay? Racism is sin. It is wrong to judge somebody by the color of their skin. It is egregiously inappropriate to believe that only white people are superior. That is, that is horrible. It's also not biblical because God says that he is going to save people from all races of all nations. So there is no idea that white supremacy or racism should enter into the believer's mind. It's wrong. It's sin. It's inappropriate. 
With that being said, the Oregon Department of Education has lost its mind. But here's the problem. By the way, I thought I would share just a quick illustration of what they're saying. If what they are saying is true, when it comes to math, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer. Imagine the next time you go to your physician and he orders for you a particular medication that is dosed at 0.05 milligrams per kilogram. For sake of illustration, let's say you weigh 80 kilograms. That would come out to a dose of about, of actually, not about, it would come out to a dose of 4 milligrams. Imagine you're interviewing this doctor and say, now you don't take this whole math thing seriously, right? I mean, you don't think four is actually the right answer. I mean, certainly, if four milligrams works, maybe 20 is better. I mean, come on, if 20 works, let's try 100 and see what happens. What will happen is you will either be better or dead. It matters. Now, my point isn't mathematics today. My point is this. Our culture has lost its taste for objective truth in everything. And we can't even have objective truth saying that 2 plus 2 equals 4. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings that they're wrong. We don't want to be too dogmatic about things. Well, folks, we need to be dogmatic where God is dogmatic. And we need to stand by the truth of what Scripture says, even when it happens to be culturally not popular, or when it happens to be inconvenient. We have to live by God's Word. And this morning, I want to talk to you about God's objective truth in a particular area of life. And I would love to tell you I planned this message to land on Valentine's Day, but I did not. But God did. We are studying the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've been working through this book thematically, and the next verse on the list happened to be Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. We're going to be looking at one verse today, and we're going to be looking at this text and explaining it a little bit of what it means, and then how do we live this verse? Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9, let me read it for you, and then introduce it a little bit more, and then we'll come back and understand what Solomon says. Solomon says, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, let's talk about God's dogmatism when it comes to marriage. From the very beginning of time, in fact, right after creation, God said this in Genesis chapter 2. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, before we get to Ecclesiastes 9.9, let's make some observations about God's design for marriage. First of all, he tells us very clearly that it is between a man and a woman. He talks about that, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The other dynamic we want to understand from God's very creation is it was his design that when someone becomes a married couple, they leave their father and mother, and they become one flesh. They become one. Now, this is curious to me. If you're keeping track of 
creation history, you will know that at this point in time, when he is speaking to Adam and Eve, they were lacking something very important. They were lacking parents. They didn't have them. God created them. They also didn't have belly buttons, but that's another conversation for another day. You can think about that for a while. You'll get it eventually. (laughs) However, however, God says that they were to leave their family. Why would God say that to people who did not have parents? Uh, Because parents struggle with letting their children go. That's why. There has to be this time in which children grow up, become adults, leave your house, and become independent functioning adults. Ideally, sooner rather than later, okay? Now, so God had this clear design that Adam and Eve would enjoy a one flesh relationship. What does that mean? Well, what it means is this. By God's design, the primary human relationship with you, if you are married, is between you and your spouse, between you as a man and your wife, as a wife, you and your husband. That is the primary relationship in your life. Now, before I go any further, let me remind you, those of you that are here this morning and maybe you are not married or you hope to be married, Let me just remind you that the New Testament tells us through the teaching of the Apostle Paul that actually those who have the gift of singleness, that that's actually superior than being married. So it's not unspiritual to not be married. It's not ungodly to be single. And so as married people, do yourself a favor, stop playing matchmaker. It's none of your business. Because God says that there are advantages, spiritual advantages to being single. Okay, and this isn't a message about that. I've preached that in the past. But we have to keep this in mind. Being married is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to please Christ. But for those who are married, I happen to be one of them. For those who are married, your primary relationship is with your spouse. Guess what that means? It means your marriage between you and your spouse supersedes your relationship with your parents. It also supersedes your relationship with your children. Did you know that? The only one flesh commandment is given between husband and wife, not parent and child. That commandment does not exist. So by God's design, there is this relationship that is very unique. It's called marriage. Let me define it for you. Marriage, as I understand it biblically, can be defined as a covenant of companionship. The word covenant is very important. Don't miss it. A covenant is a permanent agreement. This is something that two people agree upon, and it is a form of of a commitment that is to be lasting. And we'll understand that in a moment from Ecclesiastes 9. Whenever I do a marriage, by the way, I always tell couples there are certain aspects in the wedding ceremony that have to be there. But I also allow couples to write their own vows. But I have veto power. We've got to make sure they say certain things and don't say weird things. But there has to be this commitment that when I exchange a vow, when I exchange a vow with my wife, it was a personal commitment to her and only her. One man, one woman for one lifetime. 
But notice the other part of this definition is that it is not only a covenant, it is for companionship. A kind of companionship, by the way, that you share with no other human being. It's a unique relationship. I say this, I'm looking around the room, as was true in the first service, there's, there's some folks here that are, that are younger and you may not be married yet, and let me just encourage you with something. Our culture's definition of love is amazingly misguided, and we'll talk about that later on. This idea of falling hopelessly in love. I don't want to dismiss attraction or dismiss feelings and emotions in a relationship. Please don't hear me saying that. But what I am saying is that's not primary. Primary means that I choose volitionally to love another person. It also means, by the way, this definition of companionship, and I've known my wife for over 30 years, is that my wife to this day is my best friend without question. I would rather spend time with her than anyone. She's my friend. She's my companion. She's been with me through the fun and the not so fun. It's a commitment. And you know what? Marriage isn't always a great time. It brings challenges. It brings difficulties. It brings trials. But, but God says that if it, if it is a covenant of companionship, that there is a very unique relationship that is intended to be valued and treasured, and it is until death do you part. In fact, Timothy Keller said this. He said, wedding vows are not, I love this, by the way. He said, wedding vows are not a declaration of present love but a mutually binding promise of future love. Yes, I love you today, but I'm going to love you tomorrow too. And I won't just love you tomorrow. I'll love you, I'll love you for the next however many years that God gives me breath. The reality is that Satan would love to destroy your marriage, and he would love to destroy mine. This is not a marriage text that I want to read to you before we get to Ecclesiastes 9.9, but it also occurs in Ecclesiastes, and it's back in chapter 4, and this passage is often applied to marriage, and I would argue it's a very appropriate application to marriage, but marriage isn't the only application of this verse, but it is certainly one very important one. Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 4, chapter 9, he said, two are better than one. Why? Well, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has, another, has not another to lift him up. There is companionship within marriage that is unique. Now, let's take a look at Ecclesiastes 9.9. It's hard when you, re- when you read through anything written, whether it's a letter, whether it's a news article, whatever it is, you don't know the tone that the writer is writing with. But I want to suggest to you, pretty dogmatically suggest, that Solomon is actually writing this verse with a tone of regret. And I'll explain why in a minute. But I also want you to understand, as maybe you're new this morning and you haven't been here for part of the study, is that Solomon was king over Israel. 
He had money, power, access to any pleasure he wanted, and he got it. He tried everything he could to lay hold of pleasure of the things that he saw, as he says here, even this part, under the sun on this earth. But listen to this verse. Let me read it, and then I'll come back and explain to you why I think he's writing this with a tone of remorse, and then understand how do we apply it. Notice the command, first of all, enjoy life with your wife. Now, Solomon is a man, writing it from the perspective of a man. Should he have been right, if should this have been a woman writing this text, she would have said, enjoy life with your husband. But this is a commandment. Commandment means it is non-negotiable. This is something that you, as a believer in Christ, are expected to do. But he offers a clarification. Well, like, which, which wife? What are you talking about? Well, the one you love. The one that God has brought into your life. This woman that you love. Well, for how long? Well, Solomon says, all the days of your vain life. Vain just means it's short. It's like a breath of air. Poof, it's gone. You are to love your wife all the days of your vain life, every breath that you take until you take your last breath under the sun, your last breath on this earth. You are called to love your wife. Why? Glad you asked. Solomon answers. Because, he says, it is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. You could say it this way, because she is a gift to you from Almighty God. She has been brought into your life through the sovereign care and direction of your life. Love her. Now, I mentioned a couple of times that I believe Solomon is writing this with a tone of regret. Why would I say that? Well, go back to Ecclesiastes, excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 11. Find 1 Kings, is back in the earlier part of the New Testament. In 1 Kings 11, we have an account of Solomon's life and Solomon's activities as, as a king. And I want you to listen to the account of the writer of 1 Kings and what he says about Solomon. He says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Now, this word loved is an interesting English choice. I would argue this is not love. It's another L word. A U, S, and a T comes after it. This is lust. This isn't love. Notice what he says. Now, Solomon loved, lusted after, many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, didn't matter to Solomon, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, don't do that. You shall not, God said, enter into a marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. So let's just interject a New Testament principle here, is that as believers, Believers in Christ only marry believers. So whose God's will is it for you to marry? Well, number one, they have to be, if you are a Christian, they have to be a Christian. If they are not a believer, it's not an option for you. It's not God's will for you. 
Now, he goes on and he says, why? Well, because they're going to turn your heart away from the gods, with their gods. Notice the next few words are very sad. Solomon, however, clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. Can you imagine his Valentine's Day, what that was like? That was very problematic. Who were princesses and 300 concubines. I know math doesn't matter anymore. (laughs) Whatever number, it doesn't matter. But that's a thousand, right? I think. You might think differently, but I think it's a thousand. 700, 300, used to be a thousand. And his wives, listen, God said, don't do this because here's what's going to happen. They will lead you away from a right relationship with God. And for Solomon, verse 4, when he was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Now, here's an interesting statement. As was the heart of David his father. No, really? We're going to get, actually, to a study of the life of David next. But think about David's life for a moment. A man after God's own heart. And yet, there are times in Scripture there is this asterisk beside his name. All except for his adultery with Bathsheba. Oh, and his murder of her husband. It's been said in principle that as parents, what we tolerate our kids take to excess. David had a wandering heart after women who were not his wife, and Solomon decided that one of his ways that he was going to find meaning and satisfaction under, this, under, this, under the sun on this earth was to accumulate for himself wives and concubines so that he could enjoy sexual pleasure. But somewhere along the line, he lost reality that that is not biblical love. In fact, That will not bring you satisfaction. Solomon is a test case for that. So when I read Ecclesiastes 9.9, I hear urgency in Solomon's voice. I also hear regret. He's saying something along these lines. Please listen to me. Enjoy the wife that God has given to you. In other words, don't do what I did. Don't. Don't believe that there is satisfaction under the sun by pursuing a wide range of women to selfishly gratify yourself with. Instead, enjoy the wife whom you love. Enjoy her. Cherish her. Now, Timothy Keller again says this. He says, in a covenant, the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. I'm going to add a word to Timothy Keller's quote. And he says, in a covenant, in other words, this binding commitment that is intended to be lifelong, the good of the relationship takes precedent over the immediate sort of selfish needs, or I could say it this way, felt needs within the individual. Why don't you love your wife anymore? Well, she just doesn't meet my needs. Why don't you love your husband anymore? Well, he just doesn't meet my needs. Uh, If it's a covenant, it's not about your selfish needs. It's about commitment. It's about faithfulness. It's about staying committed to what the Lord has given to you. Be faithful. Now, if you're like me, you need sort of practical pictures of what this looks like. And by the way, I'm giving you kind of a snippet of about an eight-week class that I will 
teach from time to time, but I want you to look, we're just going to look at one other verse that I want you to think about for a minute, because you may be saying, well, how do I do that? I mean, what, how do I enjoy my marriage and remain faithful and not just suffer through and just get through it, stay in for the kids? Who wants to live like that? How do I enjoy it? How does my marriage become this place of refuge and this place of wonder and this place of true love, not sentimentalism and not empty physical love only? Certainly there is a place for that in marriage, of course. How do we do it? If I could pick one New Testament verse to leave you with this morning for you to think about, it is Ephesians 5.33. You can find it with me. It's in the New Testament. Ephesians 5, I'm going to read in a moment verse 33 of chapter 5. Paul here writing, he says this, he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If as a married couple you could get your mind around this verse, it will change your marriage. I can remember early on, when you first get married, you learn some things the hard way through being a goofy man or whatever. I can only speak for the men. I know what it's like to be a, I can say it this way, a dumb man. And as Ed Young said, by the way, on these commandments, he said, thou shalt not be a selfish pig. And I was for a while. Probably still am to some degree. But when... Paul says, okay, here, if I can summarize this, and by the way, the context, the greater context of Ephesians 5.33 is actually Christ's relationship with the church. And so when he talks about the home and he's talking about marriage, it's really this sort of under the sun illustration of how Jesus Christ loves his church and laid down his life for the church. That's why divorce is so devastating because it violates this beautiful picture of Christ in the church that is given as a human picture of what Jesus did for the church and his love for the church. In fact, if you go back to verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't hear a whole lot of selfish needs there. I don't hear a, lot of, a whole lot of love your wife as long as she's meeting your felt needs. I don't see that. I don't hear that. I don't believe that's the case. Instead, love your wife. How? Sacrificially, the way Jesus loved the church. So when you think about the, if you could summarize it this way, the two greatest needs, this is probably an overly simplified take on this, but generally speaking, there are two specific expectations that are brought into every marriage. For the wife, she wants to be loved. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter says that you are to live with your wife in an understanding way. The wife is craving to be loved, to be cherished. That's why this commandment in Ephesians 5, 33, let each one of you love your wife. Now, Greek is a very, New Testament was written in the original language of Greek. Greek has four words, three primary words that 
talk about love. English only has one. And there is phileo, which is where we get our name Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love from. I lived in Philly for a while. We call it the city of brotherly shove. But it is the city of brotherly love, okay? There is also eros, which is erotic, where we get our English word erotic from. That is reserved for marriage, eros, sexual love. And then there is this word that Paul uses here, a very common word for love. It is the word phileo, which means self-sacrificing love. Love your wife the way Christ loved the church, sacrificially, with no thought of what you get in return. That's what he's saying. None. And, and as, as husbands, if we are, by God's design, leaders within our homes, then the home rises and falls on leadership. And it means that husbands go first. That means you show love to your wife. By the way, we need to make this very quick observation about this commandment when he says, let each one of you love his wife as himself. We find similar terminology in Matthew 22, verse 39, when Jesus himself said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The last thing our culture needs is more emphasis on loving self. The Bible assumes you love you more than you love anybody else. So you are commanded as a husband to love your wife, just like you love you. And by the way, it gets more complicated. This is unconditional. Yeah, you know, she'd start bucking up around here and then I might love her. Maybe she'd get her act together. Then maybe she'd get some love from her. I'm going to love her. No, wrong answer. Love your wife. How? The way you love you. The way Christ loved the church and laid down his life for the church. Love her like that. Now what's curious about this is there's a commandment given to the wives in the second part of Ephesians 5.33 and it says, and see that the wife, what's the next word? Respects her husband. It does not say love. Not that men don't desire love, I suppose. But I have, through my many years now of ministry, met lots of married people and met lots of husbands. And you ask them something like this, does your wife love you? Yeah, of course. She like you? <laughs> no. No. What's he saying? She doesn't respect me. Well, you know, Pastor, when he come, when he gets his act together and he starts res- being respectable, then maybe I'll respect him. But I don't respect that man. This is unconditional too. Wives, respect your husband. Not because he's perfect. Not because he deserves it. He probably doesn't all the time. I don't. Show respect to the man that you committed to for the rest of your life. Respect your husband. And what's interesting 
about this commandment, as, as John Bloom writes this, he says, to see the euphoria of romantic infatuation, talk to someone who has recently fallen in love. But to know the real nature of the struggle and benefits of romantic love, talk to someone who has faithfully loved the same person for decades, for better or for worse. Love one another. Show respect for one another. By the way, Steve Arterburn said it this way on the topic of wives respect your husband. He said this, he said, when a man lives without respect from a woman, he lives without the fourth most important thing to him as a human being. The first three are oxygen, water, and food. Yes, respect is that important. So every time as a husband that I am selfish, that I am demanding my own way, that I'm only showing love to my wife when in my estimation she deserves it, when she is behaving the way that I think she should behave, or if she's living her life in such a way that I feel like I love her. That's not love. That's not biblical love. Husbands, love your wife the way, li- the way Christ loved the church. Live with her in an understanding way, treating her with dignity and respect and never diminishing her or humiliating her or keeping her, well, you know, wife, submit. That that verse has been misused, misapplied, and abused for long enough. Yes, there is a right submission in marriage. Yes, God's word says so. But it is assuming that the husband loves his wife so desperately and deeply and sacrificially that she will willingly follow his leadership. Now, wives, it's very easy for wives to disrespect their husband with the little snarky comment or the little roll of the eyes or indifference or demanding that he acts a certain way. And if he acts this way, then I'll show him respect. But until then, no way. There's an excellent book out called Love and Respect. It's an older book now. It's by Egridge. And Egridge tells, tells it this way, that when husbands and wives refuse to love and refuse to respect one another the way God has commanded, they get on what Egrich calls the crazy cycle. And the crazy cycle leads to destruction. And briefly, the crazy cycle goes something like this. I'll start with the husband since I am a husband. You know what? I'll love my wife the minute she shows me respect. And when she starts respecting me, that I'll love her. Meanwhile, the wife is over here telling her friends, yeah, I'll respect him when he shows me some love. But until he, until he bucks up and shows me love, nope, I am not going to respect him for one second. How's that going to work out? Here's what I say to couples. Bluntly, but lovingly, 
One of you two needs to grow up and be an adult. Husband, love your wife. Yeah, but she, no, 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 no. Love your wife. What if she never respects me? That's not your problem. Love your wife. Yeah, but love your wife. Wife, respect her. Yeah, but no, no, no buts. Respect your husband. And one of you needs to go first. And when one goes first, you know what happens? Generally, I'm sure there's exceptions to this. Generally, that will fall into a sweet, symbiotic relationship to where the marriage is restored. As a husband, I'll tell you, I I think about the opinions of people toward me very little, except my wife's. If everybody in the world can hate my guts, that's cool, as long as I know she likes me. (laughs) That's all that matters. And it just takes one comment. It's not even like she's got to write me a big, huge, long love letter. Just be, hey, thanks for this, or, or, you know, I appreciate this, or good job today speaking, or whatever. I'm good for six months. Like, seriously. It's not hard. And husbands, sometimes we show our disregard and our impatience, at least I do. Easily frustrated. Love your wife. Wives, respect your husband. Today is Valentine's Day. St. Valentine's history, his history is a little fuzzy. But from what history we can glean from his life, we find out that he was a Roman priest and a physician. And he's known as, of course, St. Valentine. He actually was martyred during a persecution of Christians by Emperor Claudius II. He was put to death in the year 270 on February the 14th. According to tradition, and tradition and history with his life is a little tricky at times, according to tradition, Valentine spent his life doing good deeds to imitate his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Under the rule of Claudius the Cruel, Roman, uh, Rome was involved in many unpopular and very bloody campaigns. The emperor had to maintain a strong army if he was going to fight these wars and continue conquering people, but the emperor was having a very difficult problem with these military campaigns. Claudius believed that Roman men were, willing, would, were unwilling to join the army because they were attached to their wives and children. So to get rid of the, the, the problem, Claudius decided that he would ban all marriages can't be married, and you can't be engaged anymore in the Roman Empire. Valentine understood the injustice of this decree and actually defied Claudius's order and continued to perform marriages for those who seek to be married. According to legend, according to tradition, is that St. Valentine, while he was imprisoned, actually befriended the jailer's daughter, and he signed a letter to her. He signed it 
from your valentine. Now, over time, since the year 270, when Valentine was known for his kindness, his self-sacrificing spirit, his desire to do the right thing, even if it meant death, and it did, that today, Valentine's Day has been reduced to empty sentimentalism, feelings of romance, flowers, and candy. Those things aren't bad or wrong, but that's not the kind of love that Valentine showed. That's certainly not the kind of love that Christ showed, but that is the kind of love that we should show. Yes, husbands, love your wife the way Christ loved his church. And wife, see that you respect, show honor to your husband and show him that you respect him. As we close, I want to just read for you one last time. Ecclesiastes 9.9. In the way that I am convinced personally that Solomon would read it for us. Enjoy. Please enjoy the wife with whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun because this is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun can hear him pleading with you, pleading with me, make your marriage what God intended. Love your wife, respect your husband, and to God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses of scripture that we have looked at today. Lord, we live in an interesting time. That love is often diminished in so many regards, as the self-sacrificing idea of love and marriage that, that you have given to us in your, in your word, the permanency of it. We, we can't control what the world does. We can't control what the culture believes. But as believers, we are called to practice what you have given to us. And that means we do marriage the way you have commanded and so, God, I pray that this morning there may be married people today that are watching online or they're here in this auditorium with us this morning, that maybe their marriage is struggling and maybe there are some very real hurts and wounds and problems. We thank you that your grace is sufficient, your mercy is sufficient, and that if we apply these principles, we will glorify you and enjoy the marriage that you have given to us the way you intended. There's not a perfect marriage in this room, or a perfect husband, or a perfect wife. They don't exist. But you have called two imperfect people to love one another and to respect one another in a way that would bring glory to your name. And I pray for each home represented today that we would develop a marriage that looks like Christ and his church and to do it for your glory. 
Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to worship together this morning. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless you.